0: netcasts you love
1: from people you trust
0: this is twit bandwidth for security now is provided by aol music and spinner.com where you can get free mp3s exclusive interviews and more It's time for Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 214 for September 17th, 2009. Listener feedback number 75. This show is brought to you by listeners like you and your contributions. We couldn't do it without you. Thanks so much. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure, privacy, computers, the Internet, all of that stuff. And our guru of security is here in his locked down fortress somewhere in Southern California, Mr. Steve Gibson of the Gibson Research Corporation.
1: Yes, Leo. Great to be (laughs) back with you again, as always. Good to see you. I love for those of you watching uh, the
0: video portion of our show, you'll see Steve's T-shirt. He bought the T-shirt he talked about a couple of weeks ago. It It says, says no, no. With a no. period, which makes it very emphatic, <laughs>
1: not an exclamation mark, just a period. No, yep. just no, no. Mm-mm. Is this anything on the back? No, it doesn't. In fact, some people have like walked around me in circles wondering <laughs> if there was like what's some, the clue, question? Yeah. Some, some clue to the no the, the And it's like, uh, no, it's just, you know, will I fix your computer? No. No. Will not. No, 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 no. And no matter what you ask, the answer is no. Yeah. It's the crusty
0: old curmudgeon t-shirt. Ow. I like yep. it. Cranky, like it. it's the John Dvorak. Exactly. Just exactly
1: what, <laughs> why is it when you say crusty old curmudgeon uh, that the name John C. Dvorak leaps to mind? Yeah, I, I was at a UCI lecture last night about inquir- the future of inquiry-based uh, science education in uh, oh, interesting. Uh, K, K through college. Oh, how really interesting talk about, you know, just in general, unfortunately, that this country is uh, sort of has an anti-science orientation yeah. now where it's. I don't know if it's that back in the fifties scientists overpromised things. I think that that people want easy answers for complex problems and complex problems often don't have easy answers. So, you know, demagoguery, which which purports to give you an easy answer, uh is more appealing than complex, you know, value-based, evidence-based, non- black and white answers anyway it's a really interesting lecture and uh, a friend that i was with saw the t-shirt he said so what's with the shirt and i <laughs> <laughs> and i said it's the cranky old curmudgeon shirt and he he said well i know you think you are and i know you think i am but you're not i was like okay well that's funny. I Guess he didn't buy it he, no. You're not a cranky old commercial. No, I'm not really. In fact, it's if just... anything,
0: I'd say you're an optimist and an enthusiast. Yeah, that's what makes this sort of funny, I think. Is like, <laughs> it's my own. It's you probably say yes joke. far more than you uh, would like to care to <laughs> it's admit. It's my own joke. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of neat that you go to uh, lectures at uh, UC Irvine and, uh, and study up on stuff. I mean, you could just sit back and read sci-fi all day, but no, you're expanding your mind. Nice to know what's going on out mm. there. Yeah, my question. I wonder. I mean, I certainly recognize that any scientific uh, bent. Mm-hmm. My question is: Is this new? We interviewed uh, on um, uh, Dr. Kiki Science Hour, the author. And
1: I wonder if this is the guy who was speaking of unscientific America. Was it him who was talking? No, he's uh, he's he, uh, he, he's a sort of a politician educator who spent about fourteen years in Washington. Uh. I mean, he, and he is a scientist at one point in the Q and a afterwards, someone asked him something and his immediate response was, um, well, I'm not aware of that. Do you have, is there any evidence to substantiate that? that?" That's a good question. Oh, it was wonderful. It was like, you know, yeah. And I, I, frankly, I mean, he had no patience for talk radio and talking heads, arguing with each other. He... (laughs) I mean he really saw sort of he just came back he explained that 2 days ago he'd been in China mm. and he was meeting with some of the top um political management people in China and in in on the topic of health and healthcare one of them said that um that they weren't really sure what was going to work but they were doing something one way over in this province and a different way yeah. over in that province. They and experiment. That's really ex- interesting how they work there. Well, and he said that, uh, that most of the management of China, for lack of a better word, are engineers yeah. that, 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 that the upper level p- political infrastructure isn't, isn't is, are a bunch of engineers and that they're applying scientific principles rather than interest. Just, you know, just then, then arguably maybe, you know large corporate lobby driven politics which seems to be what our system has fallen into not that they're the paragons of no there's virtue lots of problem. there <laughs> but, problems too uh, just don't be an ethnic minority everything's fine
0: but uh, i do have to say that it's a very big country and i i don't know how one manages a country of 1.3 billion people spread <laughs> over that kind of landmass anyway it's a very difficult thing to uh, even contemplate especially with a planned economy must be very yeah. very difficult uh, but but I just think of and I think back to the 20s when you had people like Amy Semple McPherson. We had these radio demagogues. Uh, it's not. It's not. It's kind of seems to be a strain in American in American life.
1: Well, um, one of the points that he the made that really trial. One one of the points that he made with me that really stuck was he said that that the science textbooks that we're using have about the, the way he phrased it about 1600. Um, he didn't use the word jargon. he I can't remember exactly what his term was. But it's 1,600 words that are, that are used in textbooks which are unfamiliar to the kids reading them. Hmm. And his point was wow. and he used the word analyze as an example. The word analyze. And at home, that word is not in use. It's right. not being used. And so what's happening is kids are opening these textbooks which were written by you know well meaning educating authors but but they're fundamentally using words like process and and analyze which which there is no context for unfortunately in the mind of the reader so the the message is not getting through and and there was a sense of his own frustration that there wasn't enough educational substrate from the home, you know, bringing kids into the school so that it was it was difficult for them to to get any traction with the material that they were being offered. Huh. So, you know, sort of this concern about the dumbing down of the right of the populace. Well, certainly, always something to pay attention to. That's for and not sure. a problem we have here
0: with our listeners. No, in fact, <laughs> this show is challenging for almost everybody who listens. But uh, that's you know, your brain will grow if you listen. So today's a Q and A day. Yep, two fourteen. It's even mod two. So we have questions. Do we have any security news or updates? Got a or? bunch of stuff.
1: Yeah. Remember that last week just as we were recording because we were, we were recording a day early in order to move the recording out of the way of the big Mac event, the iPod fiesta. Mm-hmm. Um, that um, we knew that this was that that was going to be the second Tuesday of the month that Microsoft was releasing things while we were recording. You had looked them up because they had been published just as we were going live and and recording and that the thing that I stuck on among those that you enumerated was a bad, apparently bad TCP IP flaw that was going to be fixed. Right. Well, it turns out that this was something we have covered in the past that surfaced last year when it was sort of repopularized, although it was originally discovered in Oh five. So four years ago, and that was the sock stress problem. The idea that, a, there was a denial of a service attack, generally powerful, that required low bandwidth, not a flooding, you know, just completely overwhelm some spot of the Internet with huge amount of inbound traffic. But rather, this was taking advantage of some some of the inherent proper functioning of the TCP protocol, where there's something called a, a the TCP window, which is is sent or as they use the term advertised um, whenever w- one end is acknowledging the receipt of data to the other, there's this TCP window, which says, Oh, and by the way, this is how much buffer space I currently have that allows you that allows the other end to asynchronously send ahead. That is, it's one of the ways that TCP so gracefully And nicely deals with the the delay of packet traveling across the Internet. If if it was necessary for each end to acknowledge the receipt of every single packet, then the round trip time would limit the amount of of data, the rate of data that you could send, because if one one end sent a packet and then waited for confirmation of its receipt, then that would obviously be a big problem. So the designers under who understood this this whole notion of you know packets moving from router to router between endpoints they said okay we need a way of allowing us to send ahead to 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 like know how much we can send and not need everything acknowledged not need to wait for this round trip time from 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 our uh, the destination and back to the source. So they created this notion of a window where. The the recipient is constantly saying, "Okay, here's how much buffer space I've got." So when so the way it works is, it's it's a guarantee of how much can be sent at the time that 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 window is received by the sender. The sender looks and says, "Oh, okay, good. He's you know the the other end is claiming that he's got 16k, so I can send. I know I can send at least that much safely." Without there being any problem. Well, what happens is if the if the other end says, "Oh, hold on a second, I have no space, I, I, I'm full right now," then the sender is blocked from sending anything. And then, if if no additional change occurs, the sender will will periodically send a what's called a a, a window probe, send an acknowledgement to. Traffic that's already been received, and that induces the other end to acknowledge that, and in the process, get an update on the window status. Hopefully, finding that some new buffer space has been made available. So, this is fundamental to the way TCP has always worked, and it's something that just sort of wasn't really on anyone's radar until um we you know th- this notion it was really just sort of a repopularization of an old problem the the whole sock stress that we talked about about a year ago so it turns out that that's what microsoft just fixed and they didn't fix it on their older os's their claim is that the stack the tcpip protocol stack as you know the term is used um in windows 2000 is too old it doesn't have the the required flexibility and in fact that's also the case I believe on XP so it's not until Windows 2003 Vista 2008 server and Windows 7 that they've got whatever it is that they're that they're doing in those stacks my sense is that Microsoft just figured well that's old you know here we are in 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 2009 we're not going to worry about 2000 anymore um and so they they did not fix that there is no fix for that in order to fix it you would need some sort of third party firewall box or something on the outside of the server essentially being a prophylactic to protect the server against this kind of attack mm-hmm. so microsoft fixed it cisco also fixed it and um, there are it, this is a, this is still an outstanding problem. And that until I mean, it's tricky to deal with because you need some sort of sort of an overseer because it's legal for the other end to say I've got no buffer space. So you just can't drop a connection that says that you need to detect that there's malicious intent, which you would detect by by a success, a succession of connections from the same IP all saying that they've got no buffer space. And at some point, in a sort of an overseer mode, you'd look at at, at all of the connections you had coming into your server and say, wait a minute, something looks fishy here. And then you you would proactively drop those connections and probably blacklist that IP so that it was no longer allowed to obtain any connections to the server, or maybe just terminate the oldest ones and allow it to keep making new ones, which would prevent there from ever being a buildup. So that was the, that was the issue that came to my attention when you enumerated the problems that were fixed in last week's update. Oh, okay. All right. Um, Apple, as we talked about uh snow leopard version 10.6 and how it was downgrading the version that a uh, flash player, Adobe's um, flash player that it installed. And you probably know the snow leopard has been updated uh, almost immediately to 10.6.1 uh, to incorporate the latest version of Adobe's Flash Player. So mm-hmm. Apple responded very quickly to that. It was, it was obviously an easy thing for them to do and something that was likely an oversight or, you know, it certainly generated a lot of press. And so they, they responded to it immediately. Um, Firefox has, has also been updated. Uh, it's now on the 3.5 version thread is now at 3.5.3 and the 3.0 version thread is at 3.0.14 so any Firefox users um, you may want to just check to make sure that you know just check for any updates and Firefox will let you know and it's just you know your standard security fixes and stability improvements um, I did inc- I did move a couple of my machines Leo from 3.0 where I had been sort of stubbornly staying over to 3.5 because a couple of times Firefox was saying, Hey, we got something really new here and what's wrong with you? I thought, okay, fine. You know, I'll give it a try. And if working just fine. And I did discover that when I reinstalled um, the various add-ons that I like to use, there was a little bit of jiggering. I was able to get them to work under 3.5. So you know, I'm I'm able to use three point five and have have the various add-ons that I like. Yeah. Yeah, I love three point five. And um something interesting happened. I don't know if you had picked up the news about a major um incursion into Apache software foundation. Uh oh. Um yeah. This
0: everybody is, uses this for their web server.
1: Well, yeah, it's us. not it's it's not the it's not the web server itself, it was their network got hacked. The the Apache Software Foundation network got hacked. What happened was um, the the exploit that we talked about several months ago the in in Linux the kernel level um, uh, privilege escalation um, privilege uh, el- uh, elevation right. exploit right. Um, that was a local root exploit was used on sort and this is really interesting i mean the way this attack happened it was used against sort of a off the mainstream sort of an, um ancillary um server apachecon.com apachecon which is the 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 a server for the for the apache software foundation conference and it was, it was dv35.apachecon.com that was running an unpatched version of the CentOS, linux cent os linux centos which still had that vulnerability oh, that had uh, never hmm. been patched so so some bad guys were able to get into that they fully compromised the machine got root destroyed the logs which meant that that for the apache guys figuring out what had happened exactly was challenging um then they used an ssh key which belonged to the backup account to gain access to the main server which was uh, people.apache.org and so there was a there was a, on on the on sort of on on the subsidiary machine was a a it had backup privileges on this main machine that allowed them to get the SSH key, and um, and the machine that they got it to was what Apache calls a staging server. So what happens is there there's like a staging server for their software, and then a regularly scheduled rsync process copies the staging server to the production server. So they were able to compromise the staging server and install CGI scripts. Um, which they added to the document root folders and then when our sync happened even though they had no access to it that put all of the changes that they had made to the staging server onto the main apache.org uh public server and so and the cgi's allowed the bad guys to obtain remote shells hmm. so so the the you know the the apache software foundation guy said you know our software our our source code is fine um we've determined the the limits of this incursion um and they were very open about it in fact the security community has congratulated them with with being being so open about you know these are the things that we did right these are the things that we did wrong Interestingly, one of the things that they felt that, that turned out coincidentally to be right is that they do not have a homogeneous server farm. They have a heterogeneous server farm. They've got Linux. They've got Sun. They, they, that's they, a good they, thing, right? They've got free. Yes, they have free it's not BSD. Monoculture. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. and so it was. In, it was the fact that. They're, they 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 had a free BSD 7 system that did not have this problem and the Sun didn't only this one sort of off to the side Linux machine did even though there still was a route in and I think for for our listeners that's sort of the coolest thing is that oh well, I mean cool in a in a unfortunate fashion <laughs> is that you is that even though you, you get you get a little bit of foothold off on some machine on the side. Once you're there, then that machine on the side may have some sort of pri- privileges or view mm. into some other machine, and and little by little you sort of gain entry into the main network, which is exactly how this happened. So the Apache guys um, are, to, I think, are to be complimented for saying, okay, this is what happened, this is how it was done, you know, and and so what they did was one by one they they actually went completely offline. They, they brought their systems down. They did have mirror servers, so they were able to, 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 to bring up a sort of a, a, um, a backup presence while they took a good, long, hard look at all of the machines that might have been infected. And then, one by one, once they were sure that those machines were clean, they brought them back up online and, uh, and learned some valuable lessons about, um, about how to be better safe. Um, in the event that one machine in their network gets compromised. And to, for example, um, they use the CGI scripts to dynamically generate the web pages that people visit. And what they found in looking closely was that they had this, the exact CGI enabled globally, hmm. even though it was not being used globally. And had, for example, it only been enabled where it was needed this exploit would not have been possible, so that's a, they, that's a common error on a lot of uh, web servers actually yeah, yeah. again it's it, it's you know it's sort of it's a little bit like the old approach of that firewalls took of being open and then selectively closing problems instead of the other way, which you know the the modern approach is you close everything and then you selectively open only those services and ports that you know you need so um, I thought that was interesting. Also, um the New York Times got hit with a JavaScript-based scareware attack. Yeah, I saw this. Woof. Yep. Um and it's interesting because it's it's a problem that again was foreseeable. Um the New York Times, like many other websites, are serving ads from a third party server. We've talked about this often. It's it's the way the way cookies are used to track people is, you know, if they the much maligned double dot net company are are a an active server of ads well if if bad guys are allowed to submit ads to third parties, those then get served to some public server and unfortunately it's possible to have scripting in in an ad of all things and and that was then it, it was scaring people, popping up a window, redirecting them to some other server that popped up a window and said, oh, you've got some bad stuff on your system. It's infected with malware. Click here to scan and we'll take care of you. And of course, there was it was 100 percent malicious. And so The New York Times is going to be modifying um, their own behavior and and somehow coming up with uh, some way to control the ads which they obviously didn't have before. It was interesting because the the, uh, the people who were doing the malware posed
0: as, uh, I believe it was Vonage. The New York Times won't say, but the reports are they were posing as a legitimate company. And I believe it was Vonage for a whole week, putting mm-hmm. norm, what would appear to be normal looking ads up for a whole week. Oh, and to then, sort of
1: establish, establish exactly. a baseline.
0: So they were paying good money out for for ads to for something they didn't even own. And then on the, then the weekend hits when I guess they figure, well, nobody, it'd be less oversight on the weekend.
1: Ah, That's when yeah. they
0: stuck it in. It's very interesting. And, uh, yep. you know, on, I, I talked about it on the radio show cause cause, uh, you know, on Sunday, the times put up this warning and it was still happening when they put up the warning. It took them a while to get rid of it. So very yeah, sneaky. These guys are yeah. sneaky. Yeah, I mean we can count on that in the future. Well, you remember it uh, happened at MySpace. There was a malware put into the in one of the rotating ad banners because a lot of these guys have automated ad systems where anybody can submit an
1: ad. You know, exactly. So, so you just post the ad and it's automatically accepted and it goes into the you know to a bin and is rotated through all the websites that are clients of that provider. It's pretty obviously a bad idea. Bad <laughs> idea, not secure. Yeah. No, um, oh, Adobe has announced that they're going to be delaying their quarterly update um, from the 8th of September to October 13th. So, of course, that passed by already, but um, they, they would have normally done it on the 8th, and they're going to be moving it to October 13th because um, this um, the Microsoft Active Template Library, that ATL problem, which has been so pervasive and has bitten so many people, has also bitten Adobe. And so we will be seeing an update to um reader and um you know acrobat and and i would imagine flash um come uh next month but it won't be the adobe's regularly quartered uh regularly scheduled quarterly update and you know you know how i feel about that i mean it just seems so ridiculous that that's the quarterly is not often enough no, and they have, they've already had several emergency updates. Right. We talked about how, well, that didn't even last a quarter. <laughs> the minute they announced it, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And in something a little creepy, uh, there was another story that, that came across my radar. Uh, there's some web monitoring software, which is available at retail under the brand Sentry and FamilySafe. Uh, It's produced by a company called Echometrics. Deborah Yao, reporting for the Associated Press, learned that this company who makes this, you know, consumer retail web monitoring software is reading the private chats of the children that are being filtered by this. Terrible. Yahoo, MSN, AOL and other services. And and selling the information from that to third parties. Oh, my goodness. So, and and in recognition that there are federal privacy laws to protect anyone under the age of 13, in the fine print, it says um, that uh, in recognition of federal privacy laws, uh, data on kids, on on children under 13... uh, says it It says the agreement states the company has quote a parent's permission to share the information if the user is a child under age thirteen um, uh, which it just several of the people who were responding to this said that this was one of the creepiest things they had seen in a long time, and there is no mention of this in the licensing agreement um The agreement states that the company reserves the right. To pass along data to, quote, trusted partners, unquote, um, and that the the confidentiality agreements with those partners prohibits them from sharing the information with others. But still, they are selling this information to to third parties, and, you know, there's no, nothing in the relationship that the typical end-using consumer has with, with, with Echometrics this company selling Sentry and Family Safe makes that clear. There's some provision to opt out if you go to their website, but not in the UI of the uh, software at all. Ugh. creepy. Yeah. Oh, that's just appalling. Yeah. Man, I think how the
0: parents must feel in that. That's just terrible.
1: Well, I hope the word gets around yeah. because um, it's the wrong thing to do. I did have a sort of an interesting uh, little spin right story. Uh, that I thought people would get a kick of, Also because this person who asked to remain anonymous works uh, in the cancer center of a major university medical center. Um, and I guess he first tweeted because his note was, just thought I would retweet what I sent out today on Twitter. And so I guess what he sent on Twitter was, computer gods bless right, <laughs> boss's PC fixed. Yay. Into- Into which volcano must I throw a virgin? (laughs) Where do I find a virgin? (laughs) And I guess that used up his 140
0: characters. It's 140 characters, but a a good use of those 140 characters.
1: And so then he said the story beyond 140 characters continues. He said, Steve, yesterday while the boss was out of town, I stopped in his office to do the weekly check on his PC, make sure his mailbox was not filling up, run the monthly Windows patch push, Tested and packaged by our IS staff ahead of time, um, but refused as an automatic push by my boss, who, like me, is old enough to remember these pushes causing problems. Mm. He said, it's been years, but he's the boss. I ran the push um, and the computer locked up, doing a control-alt-delete, forced a reboot, and it went into blue screen of death. And so he says, A-plus-certified... I may be my main job is systems management, not PC maintenance and more to the point, especially not on my boss's PC. He keeps all his documents and stuff on the hard drive and says, friends, he is old and remembers. <laughs> ser- hey, I resent that <laughs> he is old and remembers server crashes too. apparently where he lost all the stuff that he had. Yeah, on I server. remember that too. Yeah, I remember that. I remember service crashes. And he says, more terrifyingly, I realized he had turned off the remote backup I had installed for him, apparently because it slows down his PC. I called in the institutional techs, but none of their full-time professional diagnostic repair tools and tricks could get around the blue screen of death. We also did all the standard ones, last known good boot and last known good configuration And could not even reinstall the OS because it would not recognize the existing XP Service Pack 3. Mm. We are a, quote, reimage 1st ask-questions-later shop here, except in cases Which is probably like, a good policy, except yeah. for data. Except, exactly, exactly except, and he says, except in cases like this, so this was not surprising. Yeah. To my relief, we were able to slave the drive to another machine so I was able to get his data onto another hard drive. To be fair to Microsoft, he also noted that some of the motherboard's capacitors looked bad, and that might have been the real source of the problem. It it sounds like he changed tense there on me, but anyway. So he said, either way, I still faced having my boss come home the next day with no PC. I got out a laptop and began very roughly configuring it for him Knowing it would lack most of his specialized software, but as the tech finished his last effort, I remembered the copy of Spinrite I had purchased for myself. He says I've used it one time when it was unable to help a very dead drive, and another time when it saved the day. But mainly use it for my home preventative maintenance. It was time to go home. The end of the day, so I popped in my copy of Spinrite and left it, saying it was going to take seven hours to run. I went home. Worrying if I was going to have a job the next day, oh set, set my alarm early know, to, be, guy. to beat the boss in oh. to work and literally dreamed about the problem several times. Oh. All that he said, "Paren's all the dreams could be called nightmares. When I arrived, Spinwright said that it had completed. There was one unrecoverable sector. I booted and was amazed to see everything back to normal and running. Needless to say, due to the leaky capacitors, I am trying to get him a new PC before anything else happens, and I am backing up until it is safely installed. And then what I love was this final little note. He said, remember that he works for a cancer center in a major university medical center. He said, P.S., everyone here is as crazy about vitamin D as you are. <laughs> and, then he said, really? and then he said, withhold name if used, please. I wonder so, why. Do they make vitamin D, do you think? No, because it's such a strong anti-cancer agent. Oh, and they're can- anti... Of course.
0: They're a, they're a, cancer, a cancer center. Cancer center, yeah. Yep. So they know. That's very interesting. Yeah. By the way, uh, we've been looking at the ratings, and the ratings for that vitamin D episode were about, let's see, uh, they're almost double. <laughs> so I don't know whether... I, what I suspect has happened is that people who listen to security now on a regular basis shared it with people who don't listen to security now but might be interested in vitamin D because well, it just the numbers on that thing were through the roof
1: you know leo i and we both thought i was a little crazed when i did the q and a the week after all about vitamin d but it was i was in this sort of this fog because i got an unbelievable amount of feedback. Yeah, yeah. You I mean, were, it was y- just yeah. You were on the right track. Absolutely. It was crazy. Yeah, you know. So I mean, it's and, not and something
0: I, we want to do every. Uh, no, <laughs> it's not a vitamin show. But at the same no. time, I think you know everybody trusts you. They know that you're very level headed. You're not a fadist, and yeah, uh, and you do the research. So when you were saying all this stuff, I think people shared that they must have
1: like crazy. Yeah. Well, I, I know I I had hoped to bring the same level of, you know. Uh, scientific pursuit to oh, exactly. it that I yeah. that I normally exercise, exercise in my own life and anyway so it was valuable and I was really glad we did it well done shall we move to
0: the questions and answers because I have some good ones for you yes you do I you picked though yes <laughs> <laughs> no surprise to you mr gibson um starting with question 1 an anonymous gsm provider hmm a uh-huh. phone company in, uh, in the UK in England. We did an episode, of course, last week on GSM cracking. He, respo- he or she responded, Hi, Steve, I just listened to your podcast on GSM cracking. I work for a 3G operator, and we are very underscored, capitalized, and bolded, aware, and wary of the issues with GSM's 2G vulnerabilities. I thought your assessment was mostly fair. So here are a couple of additional points. Data GPRS, the packet radio service that kind of predates three G data, doesn't use A five slash one, or as they say in the UK, A five stroke one. It uses GEA stroke one, and yes, this is similar instruction to A five stroke one, but this would require a different rainbow table computation. Still vulnerable to rainbow tables, I guess. Yep. The design of GSM security was to give a similar level of privacy as is provided by the wired network. Where does that sound familiar? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Wired equivalent Protocol. <laughs> so that rings a bell. Oh, that rings a bell. So your attack on a competitor has been achievable in the past. All you'd have to do is open the manhole outside the building and tap into the analog wires or the T1 or E1 as they call it in Europe. Okay. Okay. That's, you know, they're, they're, they're setting a standard, a low standard, admittedly, but they're setting a standard. Fixing the problem. GSM was designed with the ability to add new algorithms, so a total of seven algorithms are possible. About three years ago, the GSM Association published A5-3 stroke and has been moving this forward, albeit at a frustratingly slow pace. In our defense, it's hard to get 400-plus operators and many phone manufacturers to spend money on some theoretical threat. That's that's reasonable. That's really what's difficult about all of this is legacy hardware. We even, I think, address that. Even with the current publicity, there will be operators, most operators probably, who will not implement a five stroke three as this will cost them money. It is hard enough to convince the big European operators to spend money on implementing this. Happy for you to read this on your podcast, provided you don't mention my name, and we did not.
1: Yeah, so this is I mean, this is the problem we have is you know here's here's a direct message from a listener who is with a, a GSM provider who acknowledges that while more security is available it is expensive for systems to be fit with it to be retrofitted um consumers devices have to be upgraded at the same time um synchronously mm-hmm. he also i loved how he talked about how well it's like it's like wired equivalent privacy we only designed it to be as secure as the wire would be and all as we all know you could tap wires if you wanted to so this really wasn't meant to be super encrypted security anyway, just, you know, hard enough that uh, unless you were a government, you couldn't listen in on people's phone calls. And it turns out, as we know, as technology has moved, because this is now so old, um, it's become increasingly feasible for people to have a few terabytes of rainbow tables built and stored, mm. which suddenly makes the, the, the cryptography um you know substantially weaker. And and other, you know, James Bond-like sci-fi uh technology like having a software programmable radio, well, you can order those on the internet now and download the software to make it work. Right. So it's just it's just become too accessible. Right. And and as he says, moving forward, the you know the the problem is this is probably enough encryption for most people. And remember that when Analog cell phones weren't encrypted at all. People still use them. I mean, they use them like crazy. Yeah.
0: yeah. I remember people, uh, well, we talked about it last
1: week. I remember people just having scanners and listening in, you know? Yes. I had done it. I mean, it just, you turn the scanner on and and you're listening to someone's phone conversation. It's like, whoa, that's a little too easy. Yeah. (laughs) Austin Clark in Menominee Falls,
0: Wisconsin wants cookie management. Who doesn't? Steve, for the second week, you mentioned your favorite Firefox cookie manager, but never gave us its name. I'm sure you're driving a number of your listeners like me crazy. Could you either tell everyone on the next show, if you don't want to promote it, could you at least email me the name? It could be our little secret. What is the name?
1: The name is, it's just called Permit Cookies. Permit Cookies. Permit Cookies. And I need to warn people that it is the most feature lean cookie <laughs> manager there is but much like much like the name <laughs> it's why I like it um, in fact, some listeners recommended other cookie managers and I thought, oh okay, you know I'll, I'll see, and they're just they've got more bells and whistles than I want. The way I have Firefox configured is I have it set to allow third party cookies just for the sake of not not breaking anything but to to remove all cookies whenever the browser session restarts which is one of the options in the standard under the privacy tab in Firefox so no cookies either first party or third party are ever kept permanently but then that's of course inconvenient because you'd like some sites to remember you. I don't want to have to go re-authenticate to Amazon every time or eBay or PayPal or so forth. So it's nice if there's if if specific sites that I trust are allowed to create permanent cookies. And so what I use, I use this permit cookies little add-on. It just puts a little tiny little C C as in cookie down in the Firefox tray. And when I'm at a site that I want to remember me. It's just a matter of right-clicking on that and and saying, let you know, trust this site. And so th- it's a simple UI into an existing dialogue in Firefox. That is, I could go into tools, options, privacy, and make that site an exception, but that's, you know, many more steps. The other thing is that the little C will turn green if the site I'm on is in my exceptions list. So, so it's easy for me to see, oh yeah, okay, that's, you know, I'm, I'm trusting this site. Typically, most of the sites I go to, I'm not. So everything works fine while I'm there. And as long as I'm using the browser, but there's no long-term accumulation. There's like this infinite accumulation of cookies that you normally have. Since I use this, delete them, you know, or, or keep them only for the current session option. Now, permit cookies if you put permit cookies into the add-on finder it will it will it's not in the first one that comes up you have to say show me all then it's on a page on the mozilla site and it says that it is not compatible with 3.5 and so it just that you can't even install it from there but if but in fact it is and if you go to the author's website and there's a link there He's got a whole bunch of little add-ons that he's written for Firefox. And a ways down is just this little simple permit cookies. So it's it's as simple and easy to use as could be. And I did come back to it from the more fancy cookie managers, because there's really nothing I want to do more than that. I just want to say, I you know, me, I'm, you know... Lowest common denominator guys, you know, writing things in assembly language and wanting it to be simple and clean and not slow down by Firefox and not require infinite updates. This thing's never been updated. Well, I mean, it's 0.6.2, I think, is the version of it. Um, And but it's not, you know, like no script. Every time I restart Firefox, oh, we got a new version for you. It's like, okay, (laughs) wonderful. Um, So. That's that's the thing I use. I really like it. I recommend it. It's minimal, minimal, minimal. But it just it allows my Firefox to remember the sites that I that I want to. Otherwise, cookies are all sort of session cookies that are that even the first party cookies that are constantly flushed whenever I restart Firefox. So works great for me. So you, uh, just to recap, you turn off cookies
0: completely. No, no, no. I uh, I you, don't. You block it. all cookies. And then use this to unblock the trusted sites. Is that... do Did um, misunderstand no. F- you? Oh,
1: okay. Yeah. F- Firefox has a neat option. I'm going to go under the tools menu to options. And uh, you click the privacy tab. Okay. And under cookies, I've got... I have enabled accept cookies from sites. And I have enabled accept third-party cookies. But then it, under the... But the next option down is keep until. And so... The, the normal option is keep until they expire and I've chosen keep until I close Firefox. And so the beauty of that is nothing is stored on my, you know, permanently on this system. But over to the right, there's an exceptions button. And if I look at my exceptions, I've got Amazon, BlackBerry, eBay, uh, GRC, uh, UPS and a couple others. So but it's all but like, those are added by the plugin. Yes. Got now it. You, you can add them manually if you didn't want to use the little plugin, but right. it takes just more steps. Does, and so the, the plugin th- explains this, how to do this. I mean, this is uh, the way you're supposed to do it. No, that's why I <laughs> want well, good. I'll put this I mean, in the show notes in that case. The plugin is so generic. All the right. plugin does is simply allow you, see, it knows what site you're on. So you're just able to say, Block al- or allow the right. current site, just just that simple. And so it just sort of makes it easier to put domain exceptions into Firefox. Um, but in order to make the rest of this work, you have to go and configure it the way I have. Got it. Got Which is it. to say, allow first party and third party, but then set them to keep them until I close Firefox. So
0: that's interesting. So you've told us in the past to disable third party cookies.
1: Yeah, and and for example on IE that doesn't have an option like this, I think it's that still makes more sense. And I could disable third-party cookies except to here, there's no long-term tracking happening because they're all being washed away whenever I close Firefox. Right. Now I'm looking at my Firefox settings. <laughs> but look at your cookies. If I look in my, at my oh, I'm sorry, look 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 at your exceptions. Right. I you know I I have like 10. There's only 10 sites That I want to remember me on on an ongoing basis, and they they're able to nothing else can. Everything else just gets thrown away.
0: I like this. This seems like the uh, the best of all worlds, best of all possible worlds for cookies. Very clean, and and stuff works while you're browsing, right? But it just doesn't remember anything about your previous session once you've closed it, unless you explicitly say, "I want I want this one." Precisely.
1: Yeah. So it's it's exactly what you want. It's an opt-in approach, which is extremely lightweight. Now, it looks like,
0: unfortunately, Firefox has changed their setup in 3.5 so that this you can't do this anymore. At ah, least I can't figure out how to do it.
1: Right. I'm still in... Th- on, on the one I was looking at, I'm at 3.0.14 yeah, because
0: yeah. I go to privacy... And uh, it's all about history now. And, the, boy, they really messed this up. <laughs> Gosh darn them.
1: Uh, hey, I hey, do hey, have 3.5 running on a couple of machines. I'll take a look at it and, uh, and I'll make a note to see if I can see a way to do the same thing for next week. And I'll put this in the show notes. Uh, we'll put this in the wiki. And, as always,
0: what we do, uh, this is a new thing that we do, is I have a friend feed room that I start for every show it's uh, on friendfeed.com slash twit dash conversations. And as we talk, I put links in here so that I have, I have links. So if you want network, you know, you're listening live and you want to get that information, it's there. Uh, but we'll also take that information and then put it into the, the uh, we'll put it into the um, wiki. And I'm sure you'll put it in your show notes as well. So people can get the show notes at grc.com as well. Okay. Moving right along. <laughs> Mateo Bianco in Brazil wonders about GSM cloning. Hi, Steve. Listening to the podcast, the last episode on GSM cracking got me wondering how easy how easy is it to clone someone someone's cell phone over the air? Now, cell phone cloning was a technique used for a long time. Uh, pre, I don't know if it was pre-GSM, but as a way to kind of you know steal their phone, in effect, I can accept that GSM is secure. And I don't mind someone listening to my conversations, but I do mind if someone can use my line. Is is GSM cloning possible? What about if uh, someone has physical access to the SIM card? How hard is it to obtain that one hundred twenty eight bit pre shared key you talked about? All good questions. Well, um,
1: I didn't. I, the reason I wanted to um, to share Mateus' question is it is absolutely one of the consequences of the cracking of GSM is the ability to clone. Um, It was given in several of the examples of the papers that I read uh, when I was doing the research on this. Um, If you have physical access to the SIM card, it's relatively trivial using current technology to crack the algorithm. There's something, it's called Comp128, which is the authentication algorithm, which by default has been used by most providers, it was given as an example in the original g s m spec, and while not everyone has to use it that 's what everyone has ended up using because it was just sort of here here's an example of an authentication uh algorithm that you can use with g s m and everyone said, "Oh okay fine, we'll use it." The problem is it's very old and it has been badly cracked by cryptographers who understand the weakness of it, so it is it is Absolutely possible for somebody with a radio to basically ping somebody's phone to do. And they don't even know who they are. So you would like, for example, you're in a coffee shop and this person with a laptop and a strange looking antenna and a little box to the side of their laptop has a a strange grin on their face because they're pretending to be cell towers to every phone within range and are able to, to ping the phone and acquire the shared secret that is that 128-bit key um, that the subscriber has locked up in their SIM card, and after that, be able to impersonate wow. that person's wow. phone. Wow. So it's absolutely it's it is one of the consequences of this, this cracking that we we're talking about. Wow.
0: And to go back thanks to our chat room <clears throat> to go back to our um, our question about uh, Ooh, firefox. firefox it turns out that if you go to the privacy section it, it it looks like it's a very simple section firefox will remember history never remember history and then there's a use custom settings for history that gives you access to all of those previous settings that we've seen before except cookies from site except third party cookies and then you just change this keep until to i close firefox and that's all you Beautiful. have to do yeah and then there's also a clear history when Firefox closes, but I, that's kind of separate from, from cookies, right? Yes. So we don't have yes. to worry about that. Thank you to the chat room. Once again, they, they're good. They're
1: and, real good. Uh, j- and just to reiterate, although nowhere does it say, even on the author's site, that permit cookies does run under 3.5. I am running it under 3.5, and it works beautifully. Great. So it just there's no problem with it. Excellent
0: um moving to question four dax mars which is a great name it (laughs) sounds like a science fiction name uh visiting earth via second life (laughs) i guess he is a science fiction name quick question would i be insane to try running my own web server for my website cash is short my hosting is up for renewal my isp's personal web space is very limited and not very reliable and i'd rather spend the money elsewhere i'm thinking windows 2000 or xp on an old pc with apache for windows. What do you think,
1: Steve? I thought this was a really great question because it 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 incorporates this this issue of whether things have just become so crazy on the internet that it is impossible for just a private citizen an individual uh, who doesn't have a huge it staff and security people and all of the paraphernalia that a, you know, any large organization will, that wants to have an internet presence. Is it possible for just a random guy to set up a website and, and have it be practical? And obviously he's asking us because, because security of that is an issue. Right. And it really is a good question. Um, I would I, I would shy away from Windows. That is, he's suggesting Win 2K or XP on an old PC using Apache for Windows. If I were doing this, I would use the securest version of Unix available. I would use NetBSD or FreeBSD. And you can run Apache on that. It's there's a little bit of a learning curve, but either of those runs beautifully on the oldest PC you can find. Um, it is just simple to do, and and they're going to be state of the art. They're going to be very secure. And Apache is Apache, whether it's on Windows or or on Unix. Um, it's uh, if you also install the SMB uh, support under Unix then it's very easy to look at your file system over on the Unix machine from within the Windows browser. That is, you're able to, to it's just a, a, another machine on your Windows network where you're able to open it up and look at it. It's the way I manage my Unix machines is they have SMB running on them. Um, and that allows me to see the entire drive, just like I'm, you know, like using um, file and printer sharing, where I'm I'm looking at other drives on my own internal network I'm looking at Unix that way and of course we configure Unix with text files so it's it's very simple and practical um the only problem of course is that you've got now a server deliberately exposed to the internet and the the danger is that a bad guy could could somehow use some compromise on the server in order to get root on the server, gain access beyond just being a casual web surfer, and then have access to your internal network. So this is where uh, my suggestion of multiple routers comes in. The idea being to, to put the server on an upstream router and then protect your network behind a router which is located inside the 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 network that the server's on very much it's not as much like a um the consumer grade of of dmz where anything coming in goes to that ip you really don't want that you only want to allow web services to be mapped to to the ip of that server but we we've talked about using multiple nat routers several times uh, and i would use i would use that approach and then I think you're probably pretty safe. I mean, it, it's sad that in this day and age, it's just not easy to to put a website up on the Internet and be able to do things. But the fact is, I mean, look at all of the problems we're continually seeing with this stuff. Um, it really is difficult. And my, the other little bit of advice I would have is absolutely, as much as possible, resist the temptation to make it more complex than it has to be. You know, if you don't use, if you don't need SQL server, don't put it in. If you don't need PHP or any of the fancy scripting technologies, don't put them in. You know, those tend to be where today's problems are more than just in the core web services. The core web services stuff that just, you know, serves up simple web pages are pretty solid and pretty stable now. It's all that extra fancy stuff that people are adding that we, we know that we tend to see the the leverages um, that allow people to gain a foothold inside a server. Yeah. So I I, I think yes. I think doing it carefully, minimizing your install, um, arranging to isolate the server's network from the rest of your network. I would absolutely do. I would never have the server on the same network as as mine. Um, it makes administration of it a little more painful, but most people aren't changing the, the pages on their server all the time anyway. And then I think, you know, basically you've got a web server for free. No um, uh, no web hosting, no uh, ISP or, or anything. You do want to make sure that your ISP allows you to host a server. That is, you want to make sure that they're not blocking port 80. We know that many ISPs are now blocking the file sharing ports, um, those that Windows use. Some are blocking port 25 to prevent uh, spam from illicit SMTP servers on port 25. You do want to make sure that 40, I mean, sorry, the, the port 80 and um, and 443 are enabled. If you want 443, if you want to do SSL connections, but at least port 80 um you can run a server of course on on an alternative port like 8080 but that's not convenient for people cuz that's not what their what their web browser is going to use by default so i would say yes it's not easy it's unfortunate that it's not easy but it's it's certainly doable
0: yeah and uh you know there might be it's now all of a sudden because you're running a server you have to kind of keep an eye on holes and exploits and make sure you're patching it regularly and I don't know, you know, Windows now becomes a vulnerable target as well. A lot of people would prefer free BSD or something more secure than Windows.
1: If, isn't it sad, Leo, that, I mean, it's just not easy for someone to run a web server? Like, yes, Like once upon a time. Yeah, was. I mean,
0: we used to do that. Yeah, Anytime everything. you run a server, it's not just the web, an FTP server. Anytime you run a server, even a Windows Media server, you're always kind of now opening up a little vulnerability. I like the idea of isolating it using the uh, routers. Um. You also may have issues with your with uh, if you don't have a static IP address, yep. And then you have to use things like Dyn DNS to uh, redirect because uh, otherwise people don't know where to go if your IP right. address changes regularly. There in, are also some little in, issues.
1: Yeah, in, in order to publish a um, a domain name that will whose IP will change as your machine's right. IP changes right. uh, to the, to the degree that it might, yep.
0: Question five, Tim, in Rancho Cucamonga. Oh, I love saying that. Rancho Cucamonga, California, wonders about a router's password strength. Hi, Steve. I hear a lot about having a strong wireless passphrase, but what about the passphrase that lets you into the router setup? The same password will let you see the wireless passphrase unencrypted. If I use your perfect password maker for my wireless passphrase, then a relatively weak password to get into the router, isn't the router, router's less robust password, the uh, weak link? Or am I missing something? Should I use a perfect password generated by your site for the router setup as well? Thanks, Steve. Great show. I thought that was a great
1: question mm-hmm. because we've we've talked a little bit, we've talked extensively about the, the only current vulnerability known for the strongest Wi-Fi is guessing the password. That is, there, there is still that vulnerability. That right. is the, the only problem that we currently know, for example, with WPA encryption which is not using tkip as its cipher but is using aes which is what you want to use when you can sometimes that's called wpa2 although that's really not the official name but given that you're using the best wireless encryption available the only known vulnerability is just guessing the password and that is an offline attack meaning that the that data can be captured and then taken home somewhere and pounded on by as much technology as is available, trying every possible um, password. But don't they need physical access to the router to do that? No, 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 um, no. Uh, here I'm talking about just about cracking the WPA. Oh, the WPA. Yeah, right, right. The, yeah, the WPA password in the air. Yes. So, so, so we know that and we've talked extensively about the fact that that wants to be as unguessable as possible. So so Tim's exactly right that if you had an if you had an attack on the router's password, that is the 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 administration password, username and password for the router, then um then if that were dramatically weaker and if you had access to it, and that's the point you were making, Leo, then there'd be a problem. So, so we know there's the issue of WAN side management. And one of the first things you want to do is make sure that your router is not manageable from the WAN, from the wide area network. That is from the outside, from the Internet. Um, I don't think to, in this day and age there are still routers that ship With that enabled by default, I sure hope not. Um, It's it's just incredibly um, worrisome uh, and and insecure to expose the management interface even behind a username and password. I just I just can't think of of a good reason to do it unless you really really need to administer routers remotely over the internet. In which case, there it's extremely important that you use. A strong username and password because nothing is restricting someone from just sitting on that connection and guessing username and password day in and day out until, um, you know, hopefully they're, they're never able to guess it. But when they do, they'd be able to log in. Now, in, in, but in assuming that website management is not enabled, then the only vulnerability would be somehow accessing the what is now typically a web browser interface from inside the LAN, which is the point you're making, Leo, is you know, how would a bad guy get onto the LAN? And and, and the good news is unless there's malicious software running on a machine, it's probably not possible. You've got the you know you've got the catch twenty two of the wireless aspect of getting on the LAN, which is if you had if you could if you had the wireless password, then that would get you on the LAN, giving you an opportunity to break the router's administration password. But it's it's assuming a strong Wi-Fi password, you don't have that password until you break the router's administrative password that, as Tim said, would give you in the clear access to the routers, to, to, to the Wi-Fi password. So um So the danger, and this is something we have talked about before, is, like, for example, leaving the router's admin passwords alone. We now know there's malware (laughs) that you can get on your system that is smart enough that they contain all the username and passwords for all the routers out there. And it will attempt to log into your router explicitly for this purpose. In this case, it's not trying to steal your your Wi-Fi password normally is trying to access your router in order to open ports in order to allow remote access in into your network. So so it's we know that it's important that you change your admin and username away from the manufacturer's default because there's definitely malware roaming around the world that knows if it can get into your computer, it would love to take over your router. And, and that's that's the first step to doing so. So Tim is right. It's, it's, it's not a huge problem because it's not something anyone, no one has access to your, to your admin username and password, given that you've got WAN access turned off, the wide area network access turned off. Um, So they they don't have access to your network as long as your Wi-Fi password is good, and we're presuming it's good, and that we're we're looking for the weakest link, but... um, uh, I w- it's certainly worth making it as robust as you can, and you know, certainly use another one of the the, the perfect passwords from GRC. That's you know, it's going to give you complete pseudo random protection. I've seen a number of uh, routers that have uh,
0: this as you call it WAN administration turned on by default, which oh, is shocking. No kidding? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and wow. w- we talked before, and I think I talk about this on the radio show a lot. About the, the you know, the things that you need to do when you get a new router, change the default name, change the default password, turn off WAN administration, oh, of turn course. off universal plug and play. Yes. Um, and I think those are the, f- oh, and turn on, if it's wireless, turn on WPA2. Yes. Those are the five things and you're secure, but
1: you got it if it's on by default. Ooh. Yeah, you you, you just cannot take it home and plug it in. And it's very distressing, Leo, if there are still routers that have WAN admin on. I mean, nobody needs it. Sure, maybe there are applications where, you know, some, um, you know, uh, Soho uh, IT admin wants to manage the routers of a few friends or something, but your typical end user is, you know, plugging in a router to have the right. features of the router inside their LAN. Never do they need to get to it from the outside. Right. right. Yeah, it's crazy. But, as you
0: know, this was this comes from the day when they would turn everything on so that they wouldn't get any support calls. Yep. And now, fortunately, I think most of the new routers are really being very smart and careful about telling people, this is what you need to do, walking them through it. Um, They've changed their defaults, and I think that's all good. I noticed yes. the IDENT port, for instance, is is then this is thanks to you. <laughs> Shields up. Shields up it really by put default. Put pressure on the, turn off. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Chris in Iron Mountain, Michigan brings you the wait a minute. Nope. I don't want to jump ahead. We got a New Zealand question. Gary McLary. Then I'll get to Chris. In Uamaru or Wamaru, New Zealand. A Kiwi wonders about proxy servers. Hi, Steve and Leo. Greetings from New Zealand. You're probably saying. Where the heck is New Zealand? No. In fact, I, we all know where New Zealand is ever since the Lord of the Rings. I run the school library as well as help look after the servers, desktops, and teacher laptops. Never a dull moment. Everyone <laughs> accesses the internet via an external proxy server. I think that's a good thing to do. Some of the students use other online proxy servers to access sites that have been blocked. Shame on you. Uh huh. But of course, it's a high school, and high school kids know how to do this. They're going to find a way. Certain sites are blocked to provide a certain level of protection. My question is, can the use of these other proxy servers allow viruses, trojans, and other bad stuff onto our servers, or do the proxy servers simply mask the address of the sites the students are trying to access? Can our computers be compromised by the use of these proxy servers? Now, that's a great question. Love your podcast. Been listening for years. Always learning heaps from them. Keep up the good work. I'd like to know the answer to this.
1: Yeah. Okay. So a proxy server, as we know, is sort of a way station. Instead of the client going directly out to a remote web server, the clients within such networks are configured to use a an intermediary server, a so-called proxy server, so that the client makes its connection, its TCP connection to that proxy server and then submits its request to the proxy server, which then turns around and it generates the request outside to the the internet at large, and the process is pretty quick it's It's not something which um, uh, for which there's lots of overhead. It's a little more overhead than not using one the The one tip I, I've never mentioned this before, but but Internet Explorer defaults to to looking for a proxy server. Whenever you start it up and whenever I go to someone's machine who's using IE and I launch it and it like sits there for a while, I think, oh, they, they haven't turned that off. And it's easy to change the configuration if you're you know, most typical end users in homes uh, and small offices um, are not using proxy servers. Yet IE has it turned on by default. It does proxy server, automatic proxy server discovery, huh. which stalls it's slow every, yeah it's, every time you start ie I if you if that's turned on so as just a tip to our listeners anyone still using ie and i hope there's only maybe one or two of you that you haven't been listening to this podcast that long because <laughs> even i have finally switched over to firefox um ie can be made much faster to start up if you just go down in the internet connections dialogue and turn off Automatically look for proxy servers, and from then on, it's just way faster to get yourself going with IE. Um So anyway, this intermediary is the one that then performs the connection. Well, that proxy server can have a number of functions, and in in Gary's school in New Zealand, and I guess in in the library or or the whole or he, he runs the the school library, but in the school's network, they're doing. Other things than just proxying, they've got content filtering software, which has a whole list of domains which are blacklisted. Um, that this that this the kids that are using this proxy server for their connections um, are unable to access. And you know, corporations certainly do this also. They may just block off, for example, all the social networking sites because their employees are spending too much time during the day poking around. In in Facebook and MySpace and Tweet and Twitter and who
0: knows (laughs) what. No, that's exactly what they block uh,
1: at my kid's school. Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. Yeah. Yep. They don't want to mess it around. And so another thing that such servers could do is and, and may do is malware protection. Right. They may perform some level of malware filtering you know um, we we talked about the Astaro security gateway for years here and one of the features it offered was that that it would be automatically synchronized by Astaro and it it would filter things coming and going so that your whole network behind there was 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 protected so similarly the, it might well be that the school's proxy server is offering protection from malware and Trojans, as Gary asks. However, if the students are being clever and not using the school's proxy server, but but reconfiguring their clients to use some different proxy server, as I understand it, he's saying, can the use of these other proxy servers allow viruses, Trojans and other bad stuff to get into our network? And the answer is yes, because there isn't anything About the proxy server that performs any kind, by 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 definition, any kind of filtering. It's additional features of a proxy server that may be doing that. The school's main proxy server, the authorized one, may be doing that. It may be though that other proxy servers would not be. So it's definitely something to to keep in mind if the kids are getting around the security and sort of the formal channel for accessing the net, it may be that they're getting around more than just the school's filtering. They may be getting around the school's AV technology, which, which could represent a problem for the school. Interesting.
0: My, uh, the software that they use at my kid's school, I know because I've tried to get around it, because <laughs> I'm at the, on the campus and I want to tweet, uh, also uh, knows about proxy servers and uh, and seems to catch a lot of the most common proxies. But I'm sure, you know, you know how teenagers are. They probably have figured out a way around that, too. Yep. Oops, I jumped ahead a little bit. We've got another one. Pujinwa in Chicago, Illinois, wonders whether security and hardware is a bad idea. He says, I was thinking about the security in GSM, and it seems to me the problem is that such hardware-reliant security implementations have the dil- difficulty that they, they can't be modified in future. They're stuck in the hardware. That's what happened to his, um, the DVD. It was part of the spec, and you couldn't change it once the CSS was broken. That was, that's it. Or there's, uh, anyway, perhaps it's generally a bad idea to put security in hardware because of this limitation. Once it's in, you can't change it in the future. That also seems to be the case with 802.11's WEP, shortcomings of which was inherited, apparently, by TKIP. Now one could make the case that back when GSM was being invented, they didn't have the capability of putting security in software. Couldn't one make the countercase? Maybe countercase that maybe it would be better to live with no security rather than the false illusion of security and leave the true security as a software option later. After all, when the hardware security gets broken, software has to come along and fix it anyway. Your thoughts, Steve? Is hardware-based security for long-term standards
1: products gently, generally too risky? That's really a good question. And you know, reading it, I had to think about that for a while. It's like, well, you know, is there anything fundamentally bad about security implementation in hardware? And I don't think so. It's it's probably the case that hardware at any given point in time, hardware offers greater security than software in two ways, um, it is generally much faster to implement security algorithms in hardware that is, you can take an algorithm that's in software and you can cast it into gates um, which running at the speed of of light you know at electricity can. Much more quickly process the the a, a fixed algorithm than software, which is inherently flexible. You know the power of software is it's soft. Uh, the power of hardware is that it, it can be very much faster. So, for for it, for for a given algorithm, putting that into hardware allows it to be far faster, or It'll allow you to have a much more powerful algorithm at the same speed, thus, more, potentially more security. So, so I I really think that, that at any given point in time, hardware gives you more security. Now, as he mentions, though, a hardware is also fixed. That is, the, you know, the, the gain that you got by locking it into hardware is, is its speed? Also, note that it also makes it unchangeable, which is a good thing for security. Well, you know, many of the problems we have with our software today is is the softness of it. If if we had um, if we had technology that was that was locked in place, um, then for, you know, for example, email uh, clients and web browsers that were in ROM. And and could not be modified, then they would be arguably be much more secure than what we have now, where they're inherently infectable. So. So, you know, thinking about this, I don't really I I don't see a tremendous benefit for keeping things in software, because, again, exactly as he suggests, if we had that as a requirement, because we would lose the performance edge of hardware. Then we would we would have no security at all during that intervening time. Whereas the, the the extra leverage, the extra speed and power that hardware gives us allows us to have security where we otherwise would not. Certainly we see example after example um, with, for example, as he states, WEP and also GSM, where Where this legacy hardware is now holding us back. We've we've got the power to do better security, and it's difficult to move forward. But I guess the the flip side would be not having any security at all during that time. And I don't think that's – I think that's worse as opposed to being better.
0: Yeah. You know, and often you have a combination of hardware and software. Or, I mean, there's ways to patch it. The X, original Xbox was a, had a, had hardware security built into it. Was cracked almost immediately by Bunny Wong at MIT, and then uh, I think Microsoft uses it as a learning tool. And Xbox 360 has, I don't think, has been cracked. I don't think there are mod chips for it. So they learned what not to do, and uh, it's hardware secure. Most hardware devices have hardware security, right?
1: Yes. And I think that at this point, you know, I mean, sure. Once upon a time, 20 years ago, we didn't really have a mature understanding of crypto. Right. We didn't we didn't have algorithms. We were using pseudo random bit streams and XORing them. And now we have this rich understanding of how that's bad and why that's bad. So. I think those are legacy problems that have been solved. And we're now at the point where we've got sufficient technology and speed that it's really no longer an issue. Yeah. We don't have to choose. We, we've we got algorithms that are strong enough, whether we implement them in hardware or software, to, you know, carry us hundreds of years into the future. Good.
0: Yay. Huh. I guess. Uh, our last question is actually our... Tip of the week. Our way cool tip of the week. Oh, yeah. Way cool. This is Chris in Iron Mountain, Michigan with the way cool tip of the week. It's called, uh, he calls it a cool Google feature, safe browsing diagnostic report. Steve, I was uh, doing some unusual Google searching when I stumbled across a really cool page, maybe feature on Google. It's called Google safe browsing diagnostic page. I have no idea how to access it through Google's own site. But I've been actively using the site through a direct link, which is a little long, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, and we'll put it yes, in the show notes. Yes, you have notes. to, Leo. This is so cool. Our, our listeners are going to go nuts over this. It's google.com safebrowsing safe browsing. That's all one word, lowercase, slash diagnostic question mark, site equals, and then you put the URL. You don't put the HTTP, just the URL. So he gives us an example google.com slash safe browsing slash diagnostic question marks site equals grc.com. And uh, it brings up a malware diagnostic report of the site referencing the last 90 days. So when he did your site he said it's currently not listed as being suspicious. And of the 10 pages it tested on your site, zero pages resulted in malicious software being downloaded and installed without user consent on sites that do have malicious content. I wonder what the New York Times site says right
1: now. I I put it in and it found it. Oh, interesting. Yes. And uh, you're clean you're clean and bit gravity is not. Really? Yeah, this is
0: just too cool, Leo. On sites that do have malicious content, it will give statistics as to what type of malicious software it found and how many there were of each type because Google has to index these sites all the time. Yeah, so, so it's if, looking. If there's malware, it'll it'll see it. For example, if I were to check out (laughs) tripod.com, I get the results of the 6,400 pages we tested on the site over the past 90 days. 224 pages resulted in malicious software being downloaded and installed without user consent. Malicious software includes 227 Trojans, 187 scripting exploits, 61 exploits. Successful infection resulted in an average of one new process on the target machine. Wow. He says, oh, uh-huh. this is something new and unknown to you. I've not heard of this particular page before, but I have seen the warning screens Google pops up every now and then if you're trying to get a potentially dangerous site that pops up on a Google search. Both Microsoft and Google maintain databases of malware sites. I guess this is coming from that.
1: Yes. And uh, again, I our listeners are going to go nuts. Uh, you know, it's just google.com slash safe browsing slash diagnostic question mark. Site equals and then the domain name This is so cool. And I put in the New York Times and it found malware on the New York Times. Wow. It found so I put in bit gravity just to kind of, you know, out of nowhere. And it's like, whoops, there have been some problems there. Google has found mal- malicious content. And this there. comes from
0: sites being compromised, whether there's a server error or uh... really
1: anything. It's it's Google's search engines pulled pages and looked for malicious content for whatever reason in an ad, um, in you know, in 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 a blog that had been inserted through cross-site scripting. I mean, whatever the source, the idea being that the, if a user's browser went there, the user would be in trouble. Wow! And this is just—it's so neat to stick. Just try out all my sites in there. I want to make sure I'm not. Wow! Yeah. Yeah, and, and again, New York Times came up. I think it found one problem there, and it found a few on bit gravity. And so it maintains a 90-day history and shows you the statistics for the last 90 days. And I, this qualifies as a cool tip, a way cool tip of the week. So cool.
0: I'm going through all my sites right now. <laughs> Let's see what Twitter, uh, just out of curiosity. Oh, good. Twitter.com. Uh, of the 3,885 pages we tested, zero pages resulted in malicious software. Wow. And this malicious software has never been found. That's pretty good. Try but, Facebook. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> Facebook. I know. Well, I don't know. Uh, one time, Facebook. Uh, one page resulted in malicious software. um uh, Intermediaries for deli- distributing malware to visitors. of site included man crush on McSlee dot com. Wow. This is really interesting. Let's see. Let's try MySpace. That's got to be a. A nest. 68 pages in malicious software. 76 scripting exploits, four Trojans, one worm
1: and a. Partridge in a pear tree. <laughs> tree. Wow, that is
0: great. I think people are going to spend the rest of the day
1: entering sites I think so. It's just too fun to have an instant report on what has been found on popular and, and unpopular sites. Thank you, Google. I'm putting this in my uh,
0: my Google um, show. This will this be is a Google keeper. tip of the week because that's a yeah. that's a great one. Wow. And, and thank you to uh, Chris in Iron Mountain, Michigan for that way cool tip of the week. Yep. And thank you for sharing it with us.
1: Absolutely. We got great listeners. They go to GRC.com slash feedback and send me the things they're thinking about, questions they've got, ideas they have for shows and whatever's on their mind. And I really appreciate it. That's it. We'll be back
0: next week. Do you know what you're going to talk about next week? Don't know yet. It's a surprise. We'll let the world determine it for us. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's never really a dearth there's of subject matter. <laughs> never a dull moment, Leo. <laughs> Steve Gibson is the man in charge at GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation, the company that gives you the great Spinrite, the world's best hard drive recovery and maintenance utility. It's a must-have. If you've got a hard drive, you need Spinrite. You'll also find at GRC.com a lot of great free stuff. Uh of course, shoot the messenger decombobulator Wizmo, the very famous shields up. And you'll find this show, grc.com slash security. Now you'll find 16 kilobit versions, the little tiny ones for quick download. Uh, you'll find transcripts, which makes it very easy to search the entire show. We've got to do that on all the shows. It's such a good idea. Uh, Steve's show notes and, uh, and more. And of course, he's got great security forums there as well. Highly recommended. grc.com. Steve, we'll see you again next week. Okay, Leo, safe surfing to you. Thanks very much. Security
1: now.